Thanks for whipping out that accent. As you know, it's one of my great joys. I've been to Quebec one time. Welcome back to Check This Please, a podcast where we're reading the webcomic Check Please strip by strip now that it's over to analyze and reassess our feelings about the story. Today, we're going to be looking at comic 1.22, Goodbye for the Summer, which was originally posted way on the other end of the summer, September 10th, 2014. I'm Secret. Who's with me today? Hello, hello, I'm Tomato. Yeah, today hey. I'm not drinking seltzer, I'm drinking coffee. You're all welcome. Yes. Uh, well, I guess now it's a little irrelevant because the sun has uh, basically begun to set. But when we started trying to record, it was daytime, which is unlike us. Usually record at about, I don't know, four in the morning. So um, changes, changes afoot at the, the Check Displeased podcast. Biddy is sitting in his dorm room for the last time, telling listeners that he is moving into the house and that when he is done with finals, he will officially be a sophomore. We then see him moving into, or at least moving boxes around, his new room at the house, which formerly belonged to Johnson. While he's in the middle of having a phone call with his mom, a knock comes to the door and it turns out to be Jack. Jack is trying to tell something to Biddy, but Biddy is a little blabbermouth who gives exposition about how Jack is going to training camps and so on. Finally, finally, Jack manages to stop him and gives a half-baked apology for the hit that Biddy took and says he appreciates that Biddy voted for him to be captain. Biddy leans up against the wall and says, of course, because it's been amazing playing with you, and I can't think of anyone else who I'd want to be captain. Jack thanks him, turns to leave, and then, before he goes downstairs, turns around and says, eat more protein. And Biddy says, you have a good summer too. Yeah, it's the end of the comic. That's what happens. So you pointed out, and I agree, that her style has like really developed by this point. And you, you point out looking at his freshman dorm room in the final panel versus how it was drawn at the very beginning of the comic. It's much more clear and complicated. Her style has really coalesced. And then throughout all of these strips, there's not like a lot of reusing of backgrounds. There's a lot of different angles. There's one really cinematic shot that feels very you know, like out of a rom-com or a TV show kind of introduction through a window in the house where we see Jack uh, apologizing to Biddy. I guess we could have maybe sort of interesting conversation about what that means. I don't really think it's supposed to mean anything. Yeah, so actually what I'm trying to get the listener to look at is that in the previous strip, Banquet, like literally the strip previous to this one, She's still reusing the older background of Biddy's dorm room that she drew. And she has redrawn Biddy's dorm room as he's packing it up. So it's like for the first time in the comic, since her style has evolved, we see her take on Biddy's dorm room. So it's like a really dramatic comparison. Not just, like, overall. Like, specifically, one strip to the next, you can, like, see the development 
very clearly because she has redrawn the dorm. And that's the last time we see it. Like he moves out of this room, he's done. Yeah, I mean, she basically she basically drew one background at the start of making the comic that she's just been like updating a little bit repeatedly every time she uses it, which is a totally efficient and like smart thing to do. And it's certainly not uncommon, even in like full scale animation, like all cartoons do this. No shitting on her about doing that, like totally fine. It just so happens that because she now had to draw it empty with Biddy moving out, we get a chance to see this particular comparison. I just looked through it again and I'm also thinking about how dynamic Biddy's body language is and how less stiff it is than previously. But that again, is not a, it's not a highly specific comparison. It's just a noticing of her style evolving. I also noticed that we don't actually see Biddy get dibs in the comic, which I really only bring up because we talked a little bit in some recent episode about rituals of are important. Oh yeah, I think the last episode, we talked about how rituals are kind of important in this comic and, and these milestones of adulthood are important in the comic. And I think it's interesting that although dibs do become a plot, I'm not going to say point, but like marker of interest or something in, in various character development, we don't actually see Biddy's dibs. We will talk about Biddy's dibs in the next episode. The next episode is about the strip that's called Dibs. So we'll have more to say about it there. Every single year of the comic has content about the transition of new people into the house at the end of the year through this like Dibs system. It's a way of marking which characters we should care about basically, which is also interesting. Anyway, we'll talk more about that when we get to dibs, but I just wanted to point out that we actually don't see Biddy's real process of getting dibs, maybe because it's like not that interesting. But anyway. Well, it's also like he's a character about whom the joke is that we never really see him or in fact really hear from him. I think he can't do anything straightforward. I mean... (sighs) The joke about him we saw in the previous strip, Banquet, where his face is always obscured. Yeah. The strip starts with the coach saying, thanks for that enlightening speech or whatever. So we don't see the speech. And then when he goes to sit back down, he's wearing a hat. And then when he does sit down and he's at the far end of the table, there's like a plant leaf in front of his face. So it's again obscured. And it's kind of, we didn't, I don't think we talked about it at all when we were talking about the previous strip. But you can sort of understand that it would be really hard for Ngozi to carry this joke through and depict the actual moment when Biddy gets dibs from him. The joke of John Johnson is that he's a deus ex machina. Like that's his whole thing. A meta commentary on the comic or whatever, right? Like that's the joke of John Johnson. So I completely understand why she didn't, but I just thought it was interesting to note that because it is through this joke of a deus ex machina that we don't get a vision into this particular important ritual, even though like again and again, this process will become part of the end of the year at the comic. And I'm thinking about rhythms and pacing and how patterns are part of the way this comic is organized. And I hadn't, I haven't like fully theorized this yet, so I won't get into it, but I'm just starting to think about dibs as one of these iterative processes. The way that details are layered into this conversation Biddy is having with his mother in Johnson's old room 
I don't know. It's like there's a lot of exposition that needs to happen to explain why Biddy is moving into the house and like what the context of it is. And the fact that he's relaying all of it to his mother over the phone instead of getting it like through the strip itself is a little transparent. And it's even weirder because I guess she decided that, no, we needed more info. And then the next strip is entirely about this process. So I agree that pacing wise and organization wise, this does not make a lot of sense. If we kind of look at the fact that Biddy is sharing this with his mom, I actually find this kind of like clumsy background information, a little piece of interesting characterization work. And certainly I say this in part because, you know, not to get too into my own life, but like my mother would never care where I lived in a house with other people. I would not spend this much information discussing where I live or who I live with and who they are and what they're like. And uh, and that's just my particular relationship with, with my parents. So I find it really interesting that not only does Biddy share so much with his mother, but that she cares to hear it. That shows me something about their relationship, which does continue and satisfy the expectations about that relationship set previously in the year that will continue to evolve and change and kind of not look like this anymore as the comic goes on. But I think that it says something interesting about Suzanne Biddle. And and if you're thinking about, you know, reading into the gaps that aren't deeply explored in the comic, there's something interesting about her investment in who Biddy is that would have been really interesting to explore when we get to later comics where Biddy is actually differentiating himself from his mother's expectations. So I just thought this little moment of clumsily written exposition does serve a kind of interesting characterization purpose, although probably not in a way, again, that is necessarily loved by the comic or something, but I thought that was interesting. She's interested in Biddy's life and she's able to sort of patiently hear him talk out what he's up to and ask him what he needs. She does end up going with Biddy to fix up the house at the end of this summer. We'll find that out sort of in the background of a comic at the end of year two. Yeah, I mean, she she seems to be a pretty good mom, although... I suppose, depending on how you look at it, it's possible that she's like a little over-involved and over-invested, but I think that really depends on context. Absolutely, and I think you can read it in different ways. But when I was a young adult, my parents certainly helped me in various ways, kind of set up living situations, depending on what was going on. I don't necessarily even think this is a a matter of over-investment. I think it's just really indicative of his life as an only child, the kind of closeness he has with his mother. And I think you can read into it in different ways what the impact of that closeness will be and how when he starts to differentiate himself as an adult and that closeness is no longer available to both of them in the same way because he's keeping pretty serious secrets. I think there's a lot to be read into there that the comic doesn't necessarily explore, but that this clumsy exposition actually ends up setting an interesting position that you can use to explore what that might be like for both of those characters. One interesting way to read this otherwise sort of like slightly frustrating way of getting a lot of information across. So Biddy then continues to dribble out information like he's drooling it on the floor when Jack knocks on the door and Biddy starts yammering at Jack. So the first thing we learn is that Jack is going to what Biddy calls prospect camp. This is a real thing. 
NHL teams run development camps for prospects in the middle of the summer, or at least they have traditionally. This year, I think things have been slightly different. 2020, I think, possibly interrupted some of how hockey has been. However, historically, at least in the modern era of hockey, in the summer, usually like late June, following the draft, they invite players they have drafted and also top prospects they are considering drafting or considering signing to development camps. They put all of the players up together in a hotel. And for the most part, these camps are not teaching hockey skills. You don't spend a lot of time on the ice. It's much more about the social and cultural acclimation to life in the NHL so that teams can identify how developed the players are and like how ready they are to potentially be on an NHL roster. You know, the teams try to talk to these players about nutrition, about the social aspects of like publicity. They do a bunch of stuff in the gym where they are trying to like get players' bodies conditioned up to spending an entire 82 game plus hopefully the playoffs season on a team where you're like constantly burning calories. Like we keep saying that the NHL is really, really, really rigorous. It is. It's really, really rigorous. So teams are trying to assess what the potential for success of the players they may want to add to their roster is, including draftees. Now, of course, Jack Zimmerman has not been drafted. He appears, based on what's said in this comic and what Biddy tweets about him being invited to a capital B-U-N-C-H bunch of NHL prospect camps, including Chicago's, Boston's, and Montreal's. He is obviously a prospect that many high-quality NHL teams are looking at very seriously. Development camp is different from training camp. Training camp is something that players go to after they have already been signed to a team. It is, I think, has more ice time involved, and it's for players who are already part of the team. So the development camp is something sort of different. So that is what Jack goes to do. I feel like this is the first indication in the comic that, yes, Jack is going to end up on an NHL team. I think even up through this playoff run arc that we just finished covering, it's not totally clear whether or not Jack wants to go into the NHL, if it's possible for him to go into the NHL. I don't know that it's necessarily been clearly stated that he is going to end up in the NHL up to this point. The sportscasters we talked a lot about in the episode that posted today, Playoffs 1, seem to imply that Jack is going to end up in the NHL. But I think the fact that like a bunch of prospect camps have him coming to visit is basically the comic telling us that like that is where this is going. I think from the end of the Hockey Prince where 
it's stated that Jack is on the road to redemption. Even though it's, I think, implied that he wants to get back where he started, it's a little ambiguous exactly what that means. But now we know what it means. Jack is going to be in the NHL. I agree. I think that it this is this crystallizes Jack not only as part of Biddy's arc, but that his arc, his own arc, will continue to develop in a particular way, and that this is the direction it's going in. Um, and it does continue to develop in this direction for another year. So it's effective. I also think there's something in this panel that's really great. This is one of the best written panels for me personally that I think we've seen so far. One of Ngozi's skills, I think, in writing, and we've talked about how her visual art is great, but sometimes her writing is not that effective. For me, one of her skills in writing is sitcom-esque dialogue. Like, I think she loves sitcoms. At least she's talked in at some point about how she likes sitcoms. And obviously we had the Lucille Ball reference, you know, several strips back. So she's aware of a certain kind of history of sitcom and so on. Anyway, for me, one of the things she excels in or begins to get really interesting with are group scenes and stylized dialogue that's sitcom-esque. And this moment is very sitcom-esque. You've got you know, the chatty character speaking over the stoic character in this very predictable but still pleasurable pattern. I know exactly what this sounds like. I can hear it in my head. I've seen enough scenes that do this that I can imagine what their bodies are doing and how they're talking over each other, or rather Biddy is really talking over Jack. And then finally Jack saying, Biddle, you know, right at the end. I, I don't know if he would say it exactly like that, but I've seen enough scenes like this that I get a kind of sensory pleasure out of recognizing it in this panel. And I think she does it quite well. I also think that this panel does some effective characterization work. And as Secret is about to point out, maybe, like, I don't know that all of his characterization work is done on purpose, but I, I want to ask, what do you think that we get about Biddy from this moment as Biddy kind of rattles on and talks over Jack? So I think what you can take away from Biddy here is that he is very outgoing. He's incredibly gregarious. He is super friendly. And I think this is all meant to be read as positive. His enthusiasm for Jack and what Jack is doing, I think is supposed to be read as supportive. You could also read it as like, he's kind of rude. Like Jack came to knock on his door and instead of seeing what Jack came to talk to him about, he just immediately launches into blather. I mean, honestly, like you could read this as kind of rude. Like Jack keeps trying to interrupt him because Jack clearly has something to say and Biddy is not taking a cue. We also end up seeing that, you know, Jack is carrying a bag and he's like, presumably literally on his way to the airport. So the fact, and like Biddy knows that because he says that Jack is going to Chicago for a training camp. So the fact that Biddy like cannot take a social cue and seems not to care if like Jack has somewhere else to be, it's just information to internalize about Biddy. That said, I don't think we're meant to think of him as rude. I think we're supposed to see this moment as him being 
really friendly, really enthusiastic, really outgoing. He really cares deeply and is excited by his friends. I think the way that Biddy is sort of like thrusting himself into Jack's personal space here and Jack is kind of like a little bit, I don't know, I guess he's putting his bag down, but he's also like a little bit like backing away. I don't know. To me, it's just very like reading the sort of body language of check please Biddy seems to be being very dominant and forceful here. Jack is struggling to like get a word in and eventually he just has to yell. I am so glad you brought that up because as you know, I love to discuss body language between Jack and Biddy uh, and will continue to like doing that. Yeah, I think this moment, this panel is one of those panels where it almost shimmers back and forth between these two readings, right? You get this, as we've discussed before, you get this kind of like canon approved reading where Biddy is fun and gregarious and maybe, you know, he has a certain feeling about Jack and so he's just bubbling over with that feeling and maybe he's a little nervous because of it, but he's just like full of sunshine. And then you get this other reading where he is oblivious a little to the point of rudeness. And I love that these things coexist. I think that they offer really interesting readings into the character. And I love that Jack literally has his arm crossed in front of him as he like moves his hips away from Biddy as he is leaning down to put down the the bag. But that's the position that we end up in is this interesting like Biddy is very open. He's looking up at Jack. His hands are open towards Jack. And then Jack is a little bit more closed off. He looks very intense. His eyebrows are like his forehead is furrowed. It it doesn't seem like he dislikes Biddy or is uncomfortable. There's a huge difference in the way that their body language looks. And when I compare this moment and kind of the rest of their body language throughout this comic to say the body language in Checking Clinic, where Biddy is cowering in front of Jack and is super closed off and is like in a fetal position basically on the ice, like freaking out, and Jack is towering over him. I just think that we can start to map these interesting dynamics as they shift between the characters. Like, I agree with you, Biddy is being very forceful here, but it's not in a way that is coded as like masculine. This is actually a really feminine behavior. And I don't mean that like only women talk. I mean that when you see this sort of thing happen, in a sitcom, sometimes it's like the, the nagging wife or the overenthusiastic girlfriend who's chattering like this. Sometimes it is a man, certainly that can happen, but it's usually like a sort of oblivious, like nerdy guy is often how I see this kind of enacted in, in sitcoms. Now, I'm not the biggest sitcom watcher in the world, so I don't know like all sitcom archetypes, but I just think it's really interesting that this kind of behavior is not associated with like real mask dudes, real like assertive dudes. And yet Biddy seems to be the one who is more assertive in this situation in a certain way. So I just am like really interested in the way all of these things coalesce in this moment. He's topping from the bottom, Tomato. We'll get there. We'll get there. No, I, what he is doing is he is... Um, compensating for his lack of stature in several senses by dominating in a place where he is able to. And I'm not sure he's even fully aware of it. Oh, I assume Biddy is not aware of like pretty much anything he's doing at this point in the comic. Although I do think perhaps it's readable that he grows into his own, you know, a little later. But I think at this point, this is not something that he would necessarily recognize. Also, final thing that happens in this particular panel is that I think within the comic, the green couch is introduced. Is this important? No. 
Will anything come of it? Also not. You're absolutely correct. However, I will say I have a great fondness for that disgusting couch, as I think we all do because of the extras. And so this is, you know, a nice little moment of branding. And it ties the extras to the comics in a particular way. But does it actually matter? No. Not only does it not actually matter, but I am not fond of it. And I feel like one thing we've learned from doing these videos, and when I say we, I, of course, implicate all Check Please readers, is that um, you have a lot more fondness for these things, whereas I'm just like, ugh, fucking couch, fucking senior bun, just literally anything that like people in the fandom can get fond of. I'm just like, ugh, ugh, ugh. Um, that's true so Jack um, viewed through the window where his ass is looking rather shapely Um, so he comes by and he says I just wanted to make sure we were cool and that you knew I'm sorry about that hit and after everything that happened this year you still voted for me I really appreciate it there's a lot of things actually to unpack in this one panel he says to Biddy I'm sorry about that hit. He does not say to Biddy, I'm sorry I was a dick to you. And in fact, he does not say that to Biddy ever. This, I think, will become important because the concept of apologizing to people does become part of the text of the comic. Within the comic, a lot of emphasis tends to be placed on characters being in the wrong and apologizing for things. And I'm not gonna get more into it than that here, but this is the beginning of a larger thread which will come up later and carry into, in fact, the end of year four. So it's it's worth noting that we're starting to have a discourse manufactured within the comic about saying you're sorry. In terms of this particular moment, the thing that Jack apologizes for is really the thing that he's least at fault for. Now, obviously, it's Jack who told Biddy to make that play, and I don't doubt that he is sorry in the fact that he regrets that Biddy got hurt, but as the captain of the ice hockey team, He would have told whoever was on his wing to make that play because that was the play that he perceived that they needed to win the hockey game. And at no point in time in this entire comic is Jack ever not trying to win the hockey game that he is playing. He says he's sorry, but the meaning of this apology is sort of convoluted. He's not the person who hit Biddy. And the person who hit Biddy, in fact, was not trying to injure him that badly, was just trying to stop that one hockey play. And it happened that the hit was just a little too hard and a little too late for it to matter in any meaningful sense. And then it became more dangerous than maybe it was meant to be. The extent to which Jack is at fault for the thing he's apologizing for is not extensive. At the same time, he's not apologizing for the thing that he could actually apologize for, which is, I'm sorry, I doubted your place on the hockey team, or even, I'm sorry, I was a dick to you in general. 
And I think this is important not just within the text of the comic, but also within the larger culture of the fandom, because I have in fact seen it argued that Jack is owed apologies by other characters because he apologizes to Biddy here. I have seen it argued that the fact that Jack is an asshole to Biddy in year one is rectified by the fact that he apologizes to Biddy here. And what I do think is possible is that Jack is just such a repressed, clamped up hockey player that, yes, he actually does mean to apologize to Biddy for all of the other things he did this year. And maybe Biddy even understands that that is what Jack is trying to communicate. But it's not what Jack actually says, and it's not what Jack actually does. So you have a sort of larger lingering question at this point about the meaning of apologies, both generally and within the comic itself. I think that the way that people read I just wanted to make sure we're cool opens the possibility that Jack is talking about the things that he did, the way that he was an asshole to Biddy at the beginning, especially when it gets bookended with eat more protein, which we'll get to. When we think about where Jack and Biddy are in the relationship right now, newly friendly, Biddy about to really dive into his feelings for Jack pretty soon. And I think in his body language, you can see here that his feelings towards Jack have shifted significantly. There's a particular generosity that Biddy might be reading into this phrase. I just wanted to make sure that we're cool. But I would invite people to think about once you're in a relationship with someone who can't apologize for specifics, unless there's a very obvious wrong, if Jack doesn't work on this and become more able to articulate things that he has done and what their impact might be, what would it be like to be in a relationship with that person? And I know that I'm asking these questions in a way that like is pretty fanfic oriented, probably. That's just because this is how I engage with this canon. But I don't even mean that you have to write about it. I just mean that it's like worth thinking about what is the shape of this relationship going to look like if this is the dynamic that we start from where one person vaguely apologizes and then the other person does a lot of work to understand what that apology is for and to accept it. And I just think it's worth kind of like thinking about that. I just wanted to make sure we're cool is basically a coded way of saying, I just want to make sure you're not pissed at me and that we don't have to do any more work on this. Yes, yes, yes. And it's, Sorry, for me, it's an aggravating way to say that because it's like, okay, I've acknowledged this in the most vague way possible, but I'm not actually going to do any repair work on this. I just want to make sure that like, I don't have to think about this anymore. That's what I bring to the table. So I understand there are other ways to read it, but yeah, I, I don't have patience for that. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's wheeling out of having to do any emotional labor. He just basically wants Bitty to say like, it's fine and move on. And, you know, sometimes in life, that is not a bad strategy. I do believe that, like, you don't have to talk out everything. Sometimes it's just like, okay, we're cool. It's fine. It's still what he's doing here. Like, he's, he's basically just, like, weaseling out of having to address that he acted the way he acted, 
why he acted the way he acted, what the impact of it might have been on Betty, like what the impact of it might have been on the rest of the team. He just basically is like, I've decided I'm done with this, so you are too. See ya. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because they do end up married and they don't really have more problems in this comic that need to be addressed in a broad way, at least not that they're aware of or that the narrative is aware of. But presumably at some point in their life, they're going to have some sort of argument where Jack has done something that he really ought to apologize for. And when the stakes are much higher than like, guy on your hockey team who, as far as you're aware, you're only going to know for the next 12 months of your life and then you're never going to see him again. You know, when you're like fucking married to somebody or you live with them or you've, you know, had them repeat the same behavior over and over and over and over again, maybe just like, are we cool is not necessarily the amount of work you're going to have to do to address it. And I'm sure the comic would like us to think that either they won't have those kinds of problems or they will eventually build the kinds of systems that they need to address those kinds of problems. But I think you could just as easily make the reading that Jack is not interested in doing that based on this, which actually sort of challenges my assumptions about Jack, which is that Jack hates to lose and would do whatever he had to do in order to keep together whatever the status quo of his life was. That's really interesting. And I think could play out in multiple ways. And that's why it's worth deep diving into comics because you get new understandings of who these people are. And it's very fun for me. So the second half of this, after everything that happened this year, you still voted for me. I really appreciate it. I don't know why, and I would love to talk out with you a little bit, that really sticks with me. I think it has to do with the fact that Jack is feeling this generosity spirit towards Biddy, this like desire to apologize, both because Biddy got injured and because Biddy then did something that like fed Jack's leadership power, ego, insecurity. Okay, I think insecurity is part of this in an interesting way. Like Biddy did something that reassured Jack outside of his insecurity by voting for him after Jack like recognized that he treated Biddy poorly. But somehow the way that he's talking about it is very interesting to me. And since I can't articulate it that well, I was wondering what your thoughts were about this. I have always felt that Jack is a very selfish person or rather he's a very selfish character. He is viewing his relationship with Biddy as an exchange here. To him, the reason why he should come and speak to Biddy is because Biddy voted for him. So it's not because he just realized that the way he treated Biddy was not okay, or even that he felt bad that Biddy landed on his head and got a concussion. It's that all of those things happened and then Biddy still voted for him, which, yeah, I mean, this is how people think. I think it's very realistic that somebody like Jack would think this way, especially somebody who sees everything through like, you know, a hockey related exchange process. Still, yeah, it's slightly self-centered or rather he's, he's self-filtering his relationship with this person through what Biddy is doing for him and not what he's doing to Biddy. Also, it's just like, 
gives a shit. Like, who gives a shit if Biddy, like, voted for you or didn't vote for you? Like, if you didn't get one vote on the hockey team, like, you still would have been captain. Like, you probably could have lost, like, about 10 votes or so and still won. And also, I mean, I don't know what the exact rules are. Probably not the case that all 10 of those dissenting votes would all be for the same person. Probably Jack could have lost, like, a good number of votes and still won. I think it's also the case that um, who the fuck else was Biddy going to vote for? It's just like this whole thing with like voting for team captain being a meaningful enterprise is um, I think being undermined here when you really think about it. Because it's like Biddy has been on the hockey team for one year. The person who he has been introduced to as the captain of the hockey team is Jack Zimmerman. Jack Zimmerman hasn't been nice to him, but he certainly seems like the person who's best at and knows the most about hockey, and pretty much everything Jack has told Biddy to do in terms of hockey, including giving him checking practice and telling him to make that play, seems to have actually gotten the desired results in terms of the benefit of the larger hockey project. So it's like... Even if Biddy knows he doesn't have to vote for Jack, why would he not? There's literally, like, who else is he going to vote for? Like, some rando? And uh, that's even ignoring the fact that, like, we don't even know anybody in the comic who he could vote for. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this comic wants us to think that the reason why Jack is coming to have this conversation with Biddy is that he interprets Biddy having voted for him for captain as evidence of Biddy's quality of character and that he understands Jack's character. That Biddy is such a magnanimous and good-natured human being that even though Jack was mean to him, he still wanted to vote for Jack says something positive about Biddy. At the same time, it also implies that Biddy understands something about Jack that maybe other people don't, which is that he's only mean because of all of this pathology that we talked about previously when we were going through the early comic. It's certainly an interesting exchange, isn't it? And I think that transactional nature of this moment their emotions is something worth paying attention to as the rest of the comic unfolds, you know. I also think, of course, this moment is positioned to be romantic. And I find that fascinating. Certainly, they're not in an especially romantic pose or anything at this moment. But from Biddy's body language from Jack's sort of debonair over the shoulder glance in the last, the last second to last panel. And because of other things that we've discussed that set Jack up as the obvious love interest, this is very much for me the, a step towards a romantic positioning between these characters. And so I think that also gives this apology the same shimmering quality that I talked about when I thought about Biddy's rudeness slash sunshininess, you know? Like, this moment is both kind of weird and gross and kind of selfish from Jack's perspective and kind of uncomfortable. And at the same time, it sets up this dynamic, which I think I'm supposed to find cute and meaningful. And, like, Jack really, you know, took himself out of his comfort zone here and, like, really did something. 
which, you know, maybe he's out of his comfort zone, but he's really not doing very much. So I think that that quality back and forth between, oh my God, this is like so ridiculous. Who would find this a meaningful apology? And oh my God, it's so romantic. Like they're going to be together forever is part of what gives this panel its power. And by the way, Jack's romantic gestures as they unfold uh, continue to be ridiculous. So, you know, we'll talk about that when we get there. But this, I think, is the beginning of maybe that pattern. Sad how little Jack has to do to be given a giant amount of good faith, basically. And it's, I mean, obviously it's Jack's fault. But it's also just sort of like a larger systemic problem of like, so little is expected from men, especially in the way of emotional labor, that Jack just like knocking on Biddy's door and having, you know, what could not possibly be longer than like a 45 second conversation gets Biddy basically like uh, feeling really positive about this interaction. He's like blushing and, you know, his, his body language throughout this comic, you know, he's sort of like demure and he really very plainly is, is drawn as like having a crush on, on Jack here. And I like the way it's drawn. It's, it's very clear and really effective. But yeah, I, I mean, it really is just like a testament to how little men have to do in order to be given like the benefit of the doubt and considered to be like doing an appropriate amount of emotional labor to like earn a positive reaction. And um, again, I think this is not just like within the comic, oh, Jack as a person doesn't have to do that much. I think the comic, like at no point in time does the comic or the author of the comic think that like Jack should have to do more to like earn, to like earn this position or earn this credit. And in fact, in terms of apologies and whether or not Jack should have to do more, again, the comic ends with like a character I mean, basically, Kent Parson going to Biddy and saying, if Jack thinks he owes me an apology, he doesn't. So again, I don't want to get into that fully, but I am basically establishing that we have a through line here of basically the comic insisting over and over again that no matter what Jack does, he never has to apologize. And any amount of anything that he's willing to give is like more than the zero that was expected from him. And we should consider him to have like attained personal growth that he does even the bare minimum of saying, thanks for voting for me for captain. Actually, I'm not sure he does say thanks. I appreciate it, is what he says. So that's sort of like, thanks. Well, he says he really appreciates it. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Jack. Wow. That's uh, real magnanimous of you there, bud. Yeah. And the other thing is that Biddy's response to that is like, I appreciate, oh, of course. Like, it was so amazing playing with you. He doesn't come back and say like, yeah, of course. You're obviously like the natural fit for captain of this team. But if you ever treat me the way you did at the beginning of this year, I'm not going to want to vote for you again. 
except you're, you're leaving after the next year. So I guess that's not relevant, but yeah, I mean, it's like, he doesn't, he doesn't come back at Jack with like his feelings. He's just like forgotten, you know, he doesn't give a shit anymore. It's like Jack was mean before, but he's nice now. So I'm not going to respond with like, thanks. I appreciate it. I just want you to know that like the way you treated me is not okay. Or anything that's like a response that indicates that he has like complicated feelings or that he's aware of the way in which he's been mistreated. So that idea of accountability and apologizing and responsibility are all things we should definitely think about. And Jack, you know, picks up his bag again and tells Biddy, like, don't strain yourself moving. Oh my God. I'm just imagining what it would be like to have to move like in the two weeks after having a concussion. What a nightmare. Anyway, no, it's probably, it it might be longer because I'm not actually sure when the Samwell semester ends or whatever. I mean, no, well, it's not. The Samwell semester almost certainly ends in like early May at the earliest. Yeah, that seems likely. So no, so it's not just two weeks, but I just, you know, I'm bringing my own baggage to that. Um, anyway, I won't go down this path too much more, but I couldn't be in bright light for like at least probably like six weeks after I got a concussion without getting like really disoriented and and getting sick. So the idea of having to like move boxes, deal with balancing, deal with picking up heavy things and moving things around, like it would just be a total nightmare based on my experience of having a concussion. So, but that's not really here nor there. Anyway, we get to this moment, Jack picks up his bag and then he looks over his shoulder in this like very specifically love interest debonair kind of way where he says, eat more protein. And it becomes this punchline. And I don't mean punchline of a joke. I mean punchline the way that we've discussed other punchlines as a rhythm rather than like, haha, that's so funny. Although sometimes people do treat this as a punchline. That, that's like a hilarious joke. I don't think that it is. It's a reference, obviously, right, to the first time that we see Jack yell at Biddy in the dining hall. It's a callback. Which is a staple of rom-coms, comedies, etc. You know, like that's a, that's a very common thing in order to build a certain kind of narrative framework, a certain kind of book ending. And certainly in the comic, Eat More Protein kind of like gathered steam as a recurring uh, way to reference the dynamic between Jack and Biddy. But... What I'm really trying to gear up to ask you is what is this doing in terms of building the relationship between Jack and Biddy? And what does it show us about that relationship? What does it show us about each character? Biddy thinks this is charming, but we've already talked about Biddy. He's a moron. Also, he's being forgiving because he now has a crush on Jack. The fact that Jack is using this line indicates that he is self-aware enough to recognize that how he treated Biddy was bad. He would not be saying this if he didn't recall the context that he originally said it in. He knows he was an asshole, but he's treating it as like a funny joke. Remember how I was an asshole to you. And he says it like it's supposed to be something that Biddy remembers fondly. Ah, remember how the first time we interacted in the comic, I was a prick? Again, this is definitely a place where you can read it more than one way. The fact that this is both part of the initial establishment of the world of the comic and also the last line from the main storyline at the end of the first year of the comic you could arguably say creates narrative symmetry 
and in doing so establishes that the relationship between Jack and Biddy has developed from antagonistic to friendship. They've gone from enemies to friends. Next they'll go to lovers, and then to husbands, and then they'll have a plot together in a cemetery. Here's the thing. Jack will sell the other plot after Biddy dies to just some rando and go be buried with his second husband. (laughs) Oh my god. It's not what I meant to say. What I meant to say is, yes, their relationship has developed. They've gone from enemies to friends. And reiterating this language and letting it reverberate at the end of the year inherently causes you to think about the context in which this line was originally said and compare the two moments and think to yourself, oh, they've really come a long way. They used to be enemies. Now they're friends. But it also at the same time serves to make the point that like, Jack thinks the fact that he was an asshole when he first met Biddy is now like, you know, a fun reminder of the fact that he used to be an asshole when he first met Biddy. It's not something that he like is embarrassed by or feels bad about. If I had treated somebody the way that Jack had treated Biddy at the beginning of the year, I probably wouldn't like think it was cute that I had treated them that way. And I wouldn't think that they would think it was cute if I said it to them. I would probably be completely fucking embarrassed and like never want it mentioned again. But I guess maybe that says something about Jack. I suppose he's just more confident than I am. Confident, oblivious, self-centered to the point of delusion, you know, all sorts of possibilities here. Yeah, that's that's totally makes sense to me. And I think that that kind of speaks to the relationship as a whole that, that shows throughout this comic and that we've seen develop, I guess, in some sense of develop very quickly over the past like five strips or so, where all of a sudden, you know, now Betty has a crush on Jack and their friendship is a, a central emotional core of the comic or something. There's a lot of telegraphing here. Remember, I think I, I don't remember if this ended up in, a, in an episode, but at one point I talked about programming and how writing is, writing a program in a computer, especially if you're using a natural language parser, is really counterintuitive because unlike in other kinds of writing, you sort of just have to like stick your hands into the diorama and move pieces around and then make it look to the user of that program like you haven't done that. Yes, that did end up in the podcast and... A natural language parser, you say? Oh, do I? Somebody get me that AU another time. I lost track of what I was saying because I started thinking about parse as like a game coder. This is horrible. Let's move on. This very much feels that way. It feels like the hands of the author are just kind of like knocking around in the diorama of the house and putting the bitty piece and the jack piece, like little paper dolls together and sort of like, now kiss, right? Or like, now get ready to kiss. Not yet, but it's going to happen. And I think that that is why you can read this comic as clumsy, why you can read it as this like bizarre dynamic that's going to become a psychosexual story for the ages, or why you can read it as a sunshiny romance where there's nothing extra to read into it. One more thing, the blog post associated with this comic, I don't need to get deep into it, but I'm like kind of obsessed with it. And I think the reason I'm obsessed with it is because this blog post is one of the first times that Ngozi does her little wink about the fandom and about fan fiction in a way that makes it clear she's like very familiar with fanfic 
in a way that I had forgotten, although I, I remembered she was familiar with fanfic, but I had forgotten how explicit she was in the blog post about it and because of a comment she makes. So I'll just very briefly touch one of the things she says in the blog post. So Biddy lives across from Jack now, eh? Does that mean if Biddy were to get, say, a bit tipsy at a house kegster and were to wander upstairs and were to make a wrong turn, he'd totally end up falling asleep in Jack's bed? To which Ngozi responded, you just wrote a fiction, fan. Then the following point, they said goodbye, but they didn't even kiss, crossed out, hug, or fist bump, or deposit sportsmanly slaps on each other's asses. Are they even friends? Very good question. Are they even friends? Interesting. Well, Ngozi's response is, originally I wanted Jack to hug Biddy, and while Biddy was in Jack's embrace, he would slowly realize how strong and firm Jack's arms were around his body, and then Jack would breathe in the sweet cinnamon scent from Biddy's hair and feel the weight of Biddy's head upon his chest, and blah, 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 blah. And it goes on and on in this explicitly romance novel and very fan fiction kind of way. And then last but not least underneath, she says... How did this blog post get so long? I really like getting meta about this hockey comic. I am really interested in this because it's evidence and it hasn't been deleted unlike some of the other ephemera, which is evidence of Ngozi's relationship to her own fandom, the way that she's familiar with the patterns of fandom behavior and the way that she's really, really smart about tapping into it, using it, and using it to build up a certain kind of expectation for the comic, while at the same time, not ever engaging with it in a way that is really willing to deal with transformative work in a way that is like actually transformative. That makes sense. When you make something, you're not transforming it. You're just making whatever it is, right? But I wanted to see what you thought about this little last comment about getting meta what kinds of things are going on in this blog post, if you don't mind just commenting on it a little bit. So I actually feel like Ngozi's relationship to the fandom has been much clearer from the start. I think she has been encouraging the establishment of a fandom throughout the entire run. I think that she has been weaving little you know, hints at or implications of this stuff into extras posts, blog posts, basically this whole time. And I would point to that moment that you found incredibly affirming where Biddy and Jack are on the ice and in the blog post, there's a moment of them leaning in to kiss and then their uh, face masks like bonk against each other. I think that's doing similar work. What she means when she says meta here is that she understands that readers are aware of where all of this is going and how, in fact, it is telegraphed. And that her drawing out of the development of the romance through the mechanics of storytelling is basically part of the mechanics of storytelling. Like, she's shining a light on the fact that, like, what she's writing out in the comments on the blog post is what's going to end up happening like within the world of the comic and that there is a sort of inherent contrivance to the construction of the narrative through the mechanism of storytelling that is at play here. Like the only reason why Jack and Biddy are not doing this already is because she's telling a story. But she knows it's going to happen, and you know that it's going to happen, and we all want it to happen, 
but we just have to sit here until it happens within the story. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think what feels different to me about this is that the previous pieces where Ngozi's pointing to the fact that this is a romance, we all know what's up, like that affirming moment that you just mentioned, to me doesn't engage with the actual products of fandom in the same way, versus this is very clearly touching on fanfic. So maybe to me, that's why it feels different. No, I think he has. I think he definitely has. And um, I didn't get a chance to go back and like scour the blog and like all of the extras posts, but I believe she has done this okay. before. I think this is part of a pattern for her. I mean, she set up she set up um, a FanWorks account for people to post FanWorks to on Tumblr. And she did have her submission box open for people to send her fan works at various points. I I see this as fitting into a pattern that's already been established and I regret that I didn't think about this more deeply and like go back through and sort of catalog instances that relate to what's happening here. I also want to point out that, you know, this starts to get into the sort of nebulous arena of what people remember about how fandom was at this time. But in some senses, I think that Ngozi both constructed herself as and functionally was a member of her own fandom. And that the way in which she interacted with fans in many cases was as if she was also a fan of Check Please. She understood that this was part of it and was informed about the mechanics of fandom because she had been in fandom. Like her whole experience uh, leading up to Check Please was her being a fan of other things. So I understand that like the context out of which this grew led her to having that relationship to it. I feel like to a certain extent, Check Please in some ways is in fact constructed as if it is not an original story that is being told, but as if it is effectively a fan fiction about these two characters, Jack and Biddy, who just happened to have not originated in another text. I'm ready to meta about this right now, so that's maybe where I'm getting getting that idea from, but I feel like it all fits. That makes complete sense, and I think really speaks to the question of genre that I keep returning to and thinking about how tropes are being played with in this, in this comic and so on. And, and provides a framework for understanding that. But I agree that she definitely, Ngozi definitely does act as though she was a fan of her own work. And this was my memory of like interacting with her on Twitter and seeing how she spoke about things on Twitter, you know. My understanding and listeners, please, please don't quote this anywhere, even though I'm committing it to an MP3. But I have heard people say that Ngozi wrote Check Please fanfic and like posted it to AO3 under possibly a sock. I have also heard that, but cannot confirm. And I believe it's like deleted now. And I also think it's possible that, you know, this is one of these things where 
unless you were there at the time talking to her and like within the fandom, you wouldn't necessarily know. One thing I'll point out is that those huddle zines, the first one and the third one contain stories about Jack and Biddy and in the first one, other pairings as well that are basically like short fanfics or in the first one, they're like very short little like snippets of things. I do think it raises interesting questions of whether or not it's possible to be a fan of your own characters and write fan fiction and make fan art of your own characters. But honestly, sometimes it does sort of feel, and I don't know that we have time to like talk out this whole thing, that Ngozi treats these characters as if she is like fanish about them rather than in control of them or like the creator of them. I have seen her sometimes within live streams respond to questions about what is and isn't canon, say things like, me not know, like verbatim, I've heard literally those words in that order, me not know what's canon in my own canon. Just to be clear, this is trying to contextualize how the text ends up being shaped by the person who is creating it, not criticizing in a negative sense how this woman handles her own creation. It's part of the text, the fact that this is what's happening in the story. So it's worth talking out and noting. Unfortunately, the only sort of like counterpoint or the only sort of like comparison that I can think of is that the author Rainbow Rowell wrote a book, possibly it's more than one book now, about characters who were loosely present because a character in an earlier book of hers wrote fan fiction about them. Yeah, I mean, there are precedents for basically creators blurring the lines between what is their creation and like what are they a fan of and how far does authorship go now just to be clear like that book carry on that rainbow rowell ended up writing is not fan fiction it's fiction about original characters she came up with but she came up with this for an original concept in which they were constructed as characters and fan fictions and she decided that she was a fan of these characters too and wrote out effectively what would have been a fan fiction about them. So it's just like a convoluted layer. Maybe this has to do with the convergence phenomenon that I alluded to on a previous episode, where it's sort of getting blurry, where where authorship ends and um, fandom sort of starts and how that relates to the kind of parasocial network that drives marketing for so many types of media now. I think maybe we should think about this for a future special episode topic because there's a lot to say. And I also have a lot of thoughts about not necessarily in Check, Please because of where Check, Please fandom happens or happened, but to some extent in Check, Please and certainly in other fandoms, like when fanfic becomes so far afield from the original concept that it becomes essentially original fiction and then like how authors feel about their relationship to that essentially IP, but not really IP, but kind of IP. I don't know. I think there's a lot to explore there. So maybe we should 
we should think about that for a future special episode or something. Or maybe we can just talk about it ourselves sometime. There was only one last thing I wanted to just briefly touch on about this blog. And it's something that we've talked about before and about whether or not, in fact, the point of the comic, i.e. Biddy wins, was telegraphed from the beginning. And I think here in the blog post, we see a moment where it is. The very first point of the blog post is that pie-baking, Czech-phobic, doe-eyed Southern child did it somehow. He survived his freshman year at Samwell and pretty much won peace. He befriended the upperclassmen, scored a game-winning goal, made the starting lineup, came out to his teammates, started mothering the recruits, oh boy, faced his greatest fear, and through sheer force of will got Jack Zimmerman to like him. When I started taking this comic seriously in a fanish way, as in through transformative work, This was so on the nose that I read it as ironic. I now realize that perhaps it was not. And I just want to highlight that as as another moment of that shimmering back and forth that we've looked at. Yeah, I mean, I think something that's really interesting about this this, uh, text, and I mean that in the most completionist possible way, is that a lot of the time, the tone of these blog posts and the tone of the paratext that the creator is producing can make it really hard to tell how sincere she is or not. And, you know, fair enough. But um, I think one of the reasons why it's sometimes, or at least before the comic concluded, was historically difficult to know how to read Check Please was because there was a fucking paratext running alongside the entirety of Check Please that was giving mixed messages about how to read Check Please. And that paratext, these blog posts, and Ngozi's, again, kind of winky personality where she played with the expectations of genre, tropes, readers, so on, was part of what was really charming and really brought me in as a reader. So double-edged sword, I guess. And maybe that's something we'll talk about um, later. Or maybe not. Probably, though. But I think that kind of brings us to a close. So what are we going to look at next time? We will be looking at comic 1.23, Dibs. If you look at the episode archive on the Check Please Tumblr, it doesn't exist or rather it's under the hockey ship, but it's 1.23. So if you click on goodbye for the summer and you click next, you'll get there. If you go down to uh, hockey ship comics, Dib is also under there, but it has a question mark next to it. Anyway, I'm confident that smart people can find it. If you have trouble, don't come to me about it. You'll figure it out. Tomato. If you were in a long-term relationship with somebody you love very much and they died and you buried them in your joint burial plot and then you married a much more exciting, much younger former figure skater who had a much bigger dick or whatever and you had to spend most of your life next to that person, wouldn't you also want to spend your death next to that person? You could make money if you sold the first plot. Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. You can make money if you sold the first plot. How much would it cost to exhume Jack's body, cremate it, and then stick it between the feet of your second husband 
which you've outlasted, and then you die dramatically, who you've outlasted, oh no, I just dehumanized that second spouse, I'm so sorry, who you outlast by like six months, and then you swoon dramatically into your nursing, um, your nurse's arms. She's like a young lesbian from the Bronx. She has no time for you anyway. And uh, and then you die in... Um, you die, but by then the earth is on fire. So in fact, all of you just get like thrown into a pit. How about that? I honestly truly have to say that I lost the thread of like who's died and where they're buried at this point. So I probably won't put this in the episode. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah, this has been great. This has been great. Uh, I can't wait to see what happens next time on Check, Please. I do feel like we've gotten to the point where the comic is like, interesting so there's there i feel like our our conversations while always fascinating are sort of like better and that's always nice anyway where can people find you if they want to see your meta about uh whether check please is a fanfic kind of well that's not what the meta is about and i'm planning on posting it to to this this podcast blog um if people really want to find me I'm on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R. I have a more South Park and also general fandom meta directed blog at Secret OMG, S-K-R-T-O-M-G. And I'm on uh, AO3 as Familiar. And I'm Tomato. You can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. Uh, you can find us in our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Spotify or on Podbean. And brief shout out, speaking of AO3, kind of, OMGCP Heartbreak Fest is ongoing and there's some really good fix, so you should go check them out. Uh, yeah, no, check out Heartbreak Fest. A lot of good work, and we're we're really grateful to the mods for putting on this event because, honestly, I feel like heartbreak is the only emotion I associate with Check, Please, so why not keep it going? And um, see you guys next time when we talk about dibs. Bye! Bye! And I think really isn't Check Please the story of Biddy learning how to top from the bottom to learning how to top from the top. I think that's really what the story of Check Please is. Biddy Biddy scaling his way Biddy scaling his way from from fetal position on the ice to topping from the top. <laughs>